Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well lived in the most radiant way, and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at the Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. Hello. Have you ever had one of those incredibly annoying rows with your partner about how long ago something happened? Well, here's a tip from the eminent psychologist, Bertram Malley. When we have an argument, and it could be about claims of facts, uh, one says, no, it was four years ago. And the other says, no, 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 that was two years ago. And we all know that we can get into these uh, very confident statements and claims. What we have agreed to and really do now quite reliably is when then reality comes out, it was really four years ago. The one who was wrong, who wrongly confidently claimed the other thing, has to say, you were right and I was wrong. And we literally have to use those words. Bertram Malley speaking on the Naked Reflections podcast, Who Gets the Blame? I'd like to think that most of us are capable of accepting that we were wrong about some matter of easily established fact, with some exceptions. But when disagreement concerns profoundly held beliefs about religion, identity, and the core of your imagined being, it's not so easy. With me to discuss how to disagree better are Elisa Simon, a PhD scholar here at the Wolf Institute and co-Jewish chaplain at the University of Cambridge, and Judy Siddiqui, co-founder of the Muslim Jewish Network and the Open My Mosque campaign. So, a co-chaplain and a co-campaign founder. That implies both my guests have learned to disagree well. But you can be the judge of that. Bertram Malley's strategy seems admirable, but is it relatively easy to disagree well about trivial personal matters, Elisa? I think it's very difficult to disagree well about almost any matter, even if it's trivial, even if it's something mundane every day, who makes the better cup of coffee, (laughs) when do we need to get to the train station? And I think that one of the reasons for this is that we attach part of our self, part of our inner self to the answer of um, the question regarding what the disagreement is about. So for some odd reason, there is like a value that we attach to those meanings, to these trivial mundane things. And we want to be right, even if it's something really stupid, even if it's something very ordinary. So it's not the coffee or the making of the coffee, it's the person who's making the coffee. Is that right? I think that's exactly it. It sounds like there are deep-rooted instincts at play here. 
Julie, can we disagree because of some visceral dislike or suspicion? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, actually, to think about the day to day small things. And obviously, when it's a partner that you've lived with, perhaps for a long time, you either find yourself constantly disagreeing or, as I would prefer to do, sort of go with the don't sweat the small stuff approach. Because I think when you're in a relationship for a long time, just let stuff go. And even if you know that you might have a different idea or you're right, just go with it anyway. And I think also, I don't like conflict anyway. So I think I probably find myself sometimes allowing people to speak about things that I don't agree with beyond the home and just not say anything. Now, whether that's right or wrong, I don't know. But I definitely find that sometimes I see other people chip in or or say they don't agree in a way that I don't. And perhaps it's not necessarily always a good thing on my part that I don't do that doing a discussion like this causes me to reflect on that again, actually. Well, let's dig down a bit because, you know, it's one thing to say, well, I'm not going to engage in an argument or a disagreement. It's another thing. What this podcast is about is, well, how to disagree. So does disagreement or to disagree well require compromise? Sometimes it will. I think words like respect come to me. I like it when I meet people that have different opinions to me. And I think as long as you know that there's genuine mutual respect there, then anything is kind of up for grabs, I guess, because you will be listening properly, having both ears open. And of course, once we open ourselves up in that way, we will always learn. And I genuinely feel as I've got older, I've realized that, you know, you really do have to be open to other people in order to better yourself and learn. I think to be open and respectful and have that trust where you can makes a huge difference because you know then that they're not trying to get one up. It's just about mutual learning and listening and understanding people better. And it's a great thing, of course, when it works because you will always develop. I think what Julia is saying is really interesting on the personal level, but I'm, I'm thinking like what happens to societal debates and large scale disagreements? How do we disagree better on those arenas? And I think that today in today's postmodern world, there is definitely a tendency to flatten out our debates and to even censor disagreements. So it's either you're with us or you're against us. It's a form of laziness in my eyes where we cannot disagree well with each other and we don't want to not to disagree. <laughs> we, don't, we can't agree and we can't disagree. So we don't we don't hold the debate at all. And I think this is something that today and I mean, the Times write, writes about it every weekend, the free speech uh, in Britain today about certain very contentious topics, well, whether it's LGBT or trans rights or women's places in their communities. I feel like there is a very long list that you have to subscribe to in certain areas of the political spectrum. And we're not even having these debates. We're not having these disagreements because we don't know how to have a good public debate about these things. We don't know how to disagree with each other. And something compelling that I've taken from these situations or from these columns on columns of why the debate looks the way it is, is to really try and articulate what free speech arena or what things are legitimate to say and how we can articulate our opinions in a way that won't cause A, animosity, but B, will carry the message that we want to put out there in the public arena. Yeah, and there's certain topics, I think. I mean, you mentioned LGBT issues I think particularly at the moment, as you said, trans rights and those kind of conversations. 
And sometimes I find myself not wanting to say certain things in case it's misunderstood or taken out of context or, you know, that I'm somehow accused of being transphobic in this particular instance, for example, even though I know what I know about myself and what I want to do is have a conversation with people, different people to get my head around what is, I think, a fast moving sometimes conversation about an issue that's different and difficult to fully understand and has its nuances as well. And I I definitely have felt myself, censored myself from speaking. And I think as a person who's obviously part of a faith group, it feels like I have that responsibility. You know, somehow there'd be an accusation perhaps that all Muslims are transphobic and Islam doesn't allow for (laughs) differences. Well, of course, I don't see it like that. I've definitely found myself not even wanting to go there lately for the reasons that you've mentioned Alyssa because there's a cancel culture kind of all different ways and you can't feel like you can't even speak about some of these things in public which I find really disappointing because I want to have those conversations with people in a respectful way and allow my own differences to come through but you're right it's hard sometimes to do that very polarized it feels and very aggressive sometimes the kind of discussions on some of these topics which isn't helpful for any of us really yeah I think disagreements have really become we understand them as threats rather than opportunities so if there's a disagreement about women's rights or if there's a disagreement about wages or tax or whatever it is I take it to my group and I and I view this disagreement in the public domain as a threat to me my well-being my rights in the public sphere rather than trying and engage on these topics usually there is There's disagreements on the things that are the core values, the most important things that we need to discuss as a society. We need to have these forum of ideas, these forums of debate. Um, And we just we look at them as threats rather than opportunities to actually find out what would be best for all of us together in this journey in nation states or in our communities or in our societies, whatever the group form is. As you're speaking, I'm thinking about the fact that you're both mothers and you're both bringing up children in a society that is as you said, Julie, seems to be in some ways increasingly polarised, certainly issues are binary, and there's a a loss of nuance. And I'm just wondering how we can inculcate that. You've talked about respect and empathising with the other opinion. You've also talked about, hey, I don't really want to engage in this because I'm worried how I might be exploited or the words that I use might be thrown up against me. Where do we take it from here? Because if leaders of their faith communities as you two are feel constrained about being out there how can the rest of the faith communities engage if they don't have those models and they look at their leaders who are reluctant to do so yeah i mean of course sometimes the backlash can come from those very same communities by the way for me as a as a muslim woman i would say i feel sometimes that i can be attacked from different sides including people that part of my own community and so it can be quite tricky you know I've just had another child go to university I'm very much thinking about him and the people that he's already coming into contact with who will be very different of course because the whole world is there and how is he going to navigate that will be interesting and I think that he's had a fairly easy ride in some ways up to now and it's about how is he going to feel when people aren't nice or are very much in disagreement with him 
And, you know, I guess it's now for him <laughs> to figure that out. But as a parent, you kind of feel, gosh, we've done what we can to model it, to show him what will happen now will be up to him. Where are the limits of that? So that going off to university, the leaving the home, can't come back for that support that you've just touched on, Julie. What are the limits of that disagreeing world? In other words, at what point would your son in this case say, I'm not engaging, you know, you are being so offensive that I won't actually even try and disagree well with you? Well, I suppose the thing would be there are limits, aren't there? Because we have a choice of who we speak to and who we engage. We don't have to listen to everybody necessarily and it's impossible to do that I think I would always just want them to be decent people who respond properly so even when somebody is being mean or offensive that they're able to respond with better it's a teaching of prophet Muhammad very much so that when you're you know treated badly you need to respond with something better and you know that it's not always easy to do it of course and it will also depend on our own personality I think too hopefully they can be robust enough but there will be occasions I'm I'm certain of it where he will find it difficult and part of his learning is going to have to be navigating that difficulty in a way that we've all had to do and I still have to do and I'm 50 and it all becomes part of the skin that gets thicker right as you as you get older somehow particularly in my situation as a woman in a faith community context where my skin has to be thick otherwise I wouldn't do any of this So I think it's just going to be whatever we can do as parents. Then after that, you know, they just need to be decent people. Michelle Obama says when they go low, we go higher. And that's the best you can ask for, really, I think. I really agree with everything Julia is saying. And it's made me think of a passage by Albert Mami in in his book. Um, It's called Portrait of a Jew. I don't know what the portrait is, but that's that's the title of the book. He says something very beautiful. He says, difference is the condition requisite to all dignity and to all liberation. And to be is to be different. And I think that that's something that I wish to educate my children on, that in order for all people to be liberated and for all people to feel equal, we have to celebrate differences. And to be is to be different. None of us are the same. We all carry different stories, different journeys, and therefore we'll all have separate opinions on many, on a myriad of issues. And so I think that that's just having that human experience where different doesn't challenge me or different isn't threatening me, but different is the natural, the good, the positive way of being. I think that if we manage to educate enough children about this, about the importance of diversity and not, you know, this flat culture where we all do eat and celebrate the same thing, but the differences between us, I think it would also be easier to then disagree better. Well, let's take a breath and see if we can disagree better in the second half. This is Naked Reflections with me, Ed Kessler. My guests this week are Judy Siddiqui and Alyssa Simon. Our subject is how to disagree better. Going back to the personal level for a moment, the American scientist Chelsea Vard was interviewed for The Naked Scientists. In an article called Allergies, the Immune System and Parasites, gave a fascinating insight into how a nasal spray could put an end to marital strife. Sounds good to me. In your brain, oxytocin plays a vital role during sex and emotional bonding. And according to Emory University behavioural scientist Beat Ditson, it could even help during domestic spats. At the University of Zurich in Switzerland, she and her colleagues monitored a stress hormone in couples discussing unresolved conflicts. Couples that snorted an oxytocin nasal spray beforehand produced significantly less of the stress hormone. 
they also talk more openly about their feelings. I'd like to turn to a controversial subject and see how we can disagree well, and the subject that we've discussed before on Naked Reflections, which of course is the Holy Land, or the Promised Land, or the Occupied Land, or Israel, or Palestine, a prime example of how people have failed to disagree well. Would you agree, and how do we go about it? When I think about the last, say, six months and the issues and the conflict that erupted again there and how that impacted on people here, I don't think I've ever seen it impact people as much as I have this year. And I think that there will probably be a lot of reasons for that that we'll figure out over time. But one thing that did really come to me in a very, I guess, stark way is people aren't meeting and speaking and listening here. So, you know, my context will be in the UK, but very aware that the whatever happens there has a massive impact on particularly Muslim and Jewish communities here, but others as well. And the lack of listening and respect and wanting to hear another person's opinion, I mean, it was as stark as it's ever been for me in this space. And it really was quite overwhelming difficult and also made me more determined to try and do what I can to have people come together and meet and listen and talk because you know unless you have that it just doesn't get anywhere and it's not about us thinking we can solve what's happening there but just the basics of even hearing each other it was the worst I've seen. I also experienced very similar things uh, in this past year. And I'm also partially Israeli. So I I have family back home and a really good friend of mine who's Muslim um, didn't reach out to me throughout that whole period. And we're really good friends. We see each other almost every day and we we share a lot of things together. And and I asked this friend, why didn't you like, why didn't we reach out to each other? Why? Why did this create such a divide? The two of us who are so good at, at dialogue, who know that there's another narrative, who there's another side and another story. How come we fell into this situation where we couldn't uh, talk? And it, and it created a very good and mature conversation about, about how hard it is while violence is happening to reach out to the other side and to talk, um, not even about the political issue or about the war, just about how you're doing like mentally. How, how are you feeling? Are you stable emotionally? And I think that you're right that that there is something about this violent conflict that really, it doesn't even allow us to agree or disagree, but it doesn't allow us to care for each other anymore, uh, which is very sad. There's something about the timing of engagement and the timing of reaching out to one another. And then, of course, there's the question of how one reaches out. So I suppose if we're moving on a little bit to sort of Muslim-Jewish relations and your leaders of Muslim and Jewish communities here, I would like to explore this encounter on the basis of scripture, if you like. And if the Torah and the Quran are understood as literally the, the word of God, how should observant Jews and Muslims approach beliefs that contradict the text? Help us here. I think it's okay to have an opinion, a religious opinion, that my religion is correct and, and the way that I practice is the way that I practice because I believe it to be the word of God. I think that that is a given in, in most religious communities that you believe that your religion is, <laughs> is the religion that you should be practicing. Otherwise, you would probably convert. But I think what's important to recognize is that it's okay to have a few eggs in your basket, meaning it's okay to believe that 
God and the Jewish people, if I'm taking Judaism as an example, have this bond. And if at the same time you have another egg saying, it's also great that there are other religions and that other people have different ways of connecting to God. So I have my way of connecting to God. And, and I might think that this, you know, this religion is my religion and I believe in this religion and I believe, you know, that Moses got the Torah from God and, and that the covenant exists between God and the Jewish people. But at the same time, it's good to hold on to the idea that other people have other other ways of connecting and believing in God. And I think that there's actually a lot of shared spiritual aspects between Judaism, Islam, Christianity, and, and also other religions. Just the fact that you have a spiritual life is something that makes so much more commonalities between us than differences. Can I just push that a bit, Alyssa? Because part of the issue is it's fine to say to respect other religions. And let's be honest, the Wolf Institute is all about respect and understanding between religions. But what happens when that criticism, if you like, or that engagement goes to the heart of what you believe, in your case, Alyssa, as a Jew? I'm not talking about an anti-Semitic remark, but just a remark that is, you know, something that you just believe is wrong. It's interesting what you say, because I have those kinds of conversations with people that are secular much more often than with those that are religious. Specifically, my secular friends tend to be very, very secular and to just say, you know, God doesn't exist. Why are you restraining yourselves on so many different things? Because this is just, you know, it's a figment of your imagination. And the way to deal with that is my way is to just say, you know, it's great that you have a different way of practicing and it's great that you think that I'm wrong and that doesn't threaten me. It's just a different living experience. And I'm happy that I believe in God and I'm happy that I practice Judaism because it gives me a lot in life. And the fact that other people have different opinions doesn't take away from my experience. It doesn't take away from my relationship with my religious community, with God, with spirituality. And so I don't take it personally. I don't let it offend me in that way because there is no reason for it to offend me that other people have different perceptions about God and reality and truth. It is how it is about every single topic in life. It's interesting for me because, you know, to be a Muslim the core belief is that we believe in all of the books that have come before and the prophets and all of them have come before. And the Quran is the last word of God that sort of corrected all the others. And Muhammad is the last prophet of God after all of the others sort of came and went and he's the last one. And so that's very different to the other way around for Jews and Christians and how do Jews and Christians even see Muhammad if they do. And that in itself is challenging, right? Because, I mean, you know, it's, I can I get that because who even was he? Did he even exist? And of course, for Muslims, it's fundamental that he did and that we agree with all of these other things as well. And I sometimes feel that and maybe it's controversial to say it, but sometimes I feel but I can among friends that um Muslims sometimes can be kind of almost arrogant about that. It's almost like, oh, yeah, yeah, but, you know, we believe in all the books, but ours is the right one. And that's not great either to have that in people. And arrogance is obviously a very strong negative word. But I do sometimes feel it can be a bit lazy as well, because actually to be a Muslim, what does it mean to believe in those books as well? And that surely means that we should then dive into them and understand them and, you know, to do that, we would need help from Christians and Jews and others. And I'm not sure that happens. So, you know, it's almost as if they're kind of, yeah, that's that. But we just have this one. This one's all right. And how much do we even study this one? Not enough. In some cases, Muslims often know the Quran by heart for prayers and know it by in Arabic. But when it comes to actually understanding what it means, a lot of people don't necessarily know enough about it. 
I think one thing that you've both said without saying it is the ability to be self-critical. And it seems to me one of the aspects of disagreeing well is showing the partner or the person you're engaging with that you're willing to criticize yourself. You're willing to ask questions of your own community, whether it's a faith community, and the arrogance, not just people of religion, but of all people and all professions and vocations, and even scientists, whom are our, our listeners, that actually there is a need to be self-critical. And I, I wonder whether that's part of what it means to disagree well. Yeah, and I guess that's a vulnerability, isn't it? It's about humility and allowing yourself to realize, oh, actually, maybe I don't know everything. And however close I am to my faith or to my scientific belief, there are other people that can offer me something. And it's that open mindset that we all should have, I think. You know, I'm very passionate about being a Muslim. I'm very passionate about my faith, my understanding of the Quran and the learning of that. I'm very passionately connected to Muhammad, peace be upon him, as a prophet. But I am also open to and feel I'm better for listening to other people. And what does that mean for me? And how does that shape my ideas? And I think that the moment we close that gate, we're actually worse off, for sure. I really identify with what Julia is saying. And, and I think arrogance is a very, very, very dangerous place to be in terms of faith community. But I'll also say that in so many ways, when I've participated in prayers in mosques and when I've gone into churches, I felt spirituality. I felt my connection to God be enriched by what I was seeing around me. So yes, I'm Elisa and I identify as Jewish, but there are channels where these other forms of religion and these other religious communities and their, their ways of being religious have really enriched my understanding of my relationship to God, my way of being religious. What I consider to be a faithful community has definitely changed. It's not only my faithful community, it's people around me that practice faith. I see them as colleagues of mine in this journey versus sometimes the secular world, which sometimes is even more challenging for me. And I can openly say that I sometimes will feel closer to God having just been in a synagogue. Or I remember once particular thing that's just come to my mind. I was given a space to pray at Lambeth Palace. I felt really, you know, a deep connection. And even I remember at Westminster Abbey as well, in, you know, in one of the rooms in one of the corridors, you know, when people make that space and you, you allow yourself to be, so this isn't me praying in a church, but this is me praying in a room that's been offered as hospitality. I remember it's quite moving, actually, because people have gone out of their way to help you make it happen. And sometimes I'm in a mosque and I don't feel like that. Okay. It's confession time. Have either of you taken issue with someone unreasonably because of the manner of their speech? Of course. I mean, I can't think of one example right now, but I find, you know, the way people speak and the tone or, the, or what they're saying, quite often I find that problematic. And so I think how we speak and how we deal with others is really, really important almost sometimes more than even what they're saying. If they're making you feel uneasy or threatened in some way, I absolutely take issue with that. Sometimes online, for example, that stuff can happen a lot. It's awful. People somehow become very aggressive and I'd rather just cut off from those people. And I made the mistake that earlier this year of trying to engage with some of that and realised very quickly it's pointless and it's not doing me any good and it was actually affecting me a lot. So I 
cut myself off from it and straight away I felt liberated but that was because people were coming in and in and in and whatever I tried to say they were trying to make me feel somehow less than I was or they were saying things about me that weren't true so online it can be particularly bad but I've definitely taken issue and I'd rather just cut myself off from those people I've definitely had situations in my family. So this is my <laughs> my sisters and their husbands back home uh, where I can't really extract myself and I can't cut people off, but where the tone becomes very argumentative, very heated, very unpleasant. Usually I bring my husband to rescue me because he is this very calm person and nobody can argue with him and they've tried and it just doesn't work. He doesn't participate in these kinds of arguments. Uh, but I've definitely sometimes realized that I'm taking on that tone. I'm taking on that mode of just answering in, in a way that is actually rude <laughs> and doesn't help anybody understand anything better. So that's definitely happened to me. And I think what you're saying, Julie, is it's a bit frightening. The people that it's hardest for me to disagree with are the people that often are argumentative and often it isn't very comfortable to talk to them. And, and online, I don't even go on Facebook and I don't conduct any of this online because I just, I can't bear it. <laughs> I get so upset that I just, exactly what you said, I just, I can't do it. You've mentioned this early on this podcast, but that's also a problem because then the people that I most need to disagree with, the people I most need to argue with, is sometimes we just can't do it in an orderly and a reasonable manner. Respectfully, I have to bring this disagreement to a close. Thanks to my guests, Judy Siddiqui and Elisa Seaman, and thank you for listening wherever you are. If you agree that this podcast was enjoyable, why not look at our back catalogue of discussions? We're approaching our 100th episode, and they're all available for listening. You may also want to check out other podcasts from the Wolf Institute or from our friends at Naked Scientists. I'll be back next week with some more guests. 